You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. Right, it is uh, 24 minutes to uh, 3 o'clock, and this is where we join um, Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, the Chair of Science at the University of Cambridge, and of course, a podcaster. Good afternoon, Chris. Hello, how are you? Very good, thank you. Very, very good. Guess what? Uh, over 50s are being vaccinated as we speak, and over, four- hey. over 40s will be next. So, it's closer than us. And we'll be uh, vaccinating journalists in South Africa. We're doing our police this week, and uh, as well as our teachers um, that concluded. And now we're doing our police. And then in this rollout, media workers will, will follow suit. This is terrific, isn't it? Because it shows what can be achieved. And this is ultimately the beginning of the road to home mm. for anyone, you know, mm. where, where this sort of process is happening. Because you just take a look at what people are, are regarding as the, the, the world's vaccination petri dish at the moment, which is the UK. And you begin to see what really lies ahead for yeah. countries once you get the vaccination rates right up, even if the Delta variant, formerly known as the Indian subtype 2 variant, comes to town. Because we're now seeing... About 99% of the cases we're diagnosing every day being caused by the Delta agent. And we've got about 25 to 30,000 cases a day that we know about going through the country at the moment. Probably because half of them are going to be asymptomatic. You can comfortably double that for the real number. Mm. And what we're not seeing, though, despite a very, very fast and rapid escalation in case numbers, is a similar number of casualties or hospital admissions. And this is a stark contrast with previous uh, waves that we've seen when we had a a wave when this first appeared last year. We then had an autumn wave. We then had the the, uh, January surge. And in all those cases, you saw with a a predictable lag, an upswing in cases, then the upswing in hospitalizations and sadly, people passing away. That is not happening this time. And while we have these very, very high numbers, what we're not seeing are significant numbers of people in hospital. We've got about 1% of our hospital beds have currently got people with coronavirus in them. At peak before, it was approaching half. Hmm. So this is this is tremendous. And, and it's all down to vaccination because we have prioritised the vaccines into the people who need them the most, people who are most vulnerable, elderly, people with pre-existing health conditions. And they work. Yeah, and so, this so the is hospitals can cope example. again. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. And so this is a wonderful example for um, how other countries can inform their own approach to vaccination, opening up the country to get the industry and uh, to get the economies moving again. So, you know, watch this space. But, it, it you know, from the experiment we're doing across our country, it mm-hmm. looks like the odds are good for your country as well. Yeah, yeah. And may the numbers continue to increase vaccinate, va- vaccine, vaccinated uh, citizens, that is. Well, um, we've got calls already. Let's go straight to the lines. Poloso has given us a call from Baklu. Hi, Poloso. Hi, Azania. Hi, Chris. I, I just want to find out. Yes, is it possible if someone dies of extreme cold, uh, can they come back to life? Apparently, uh, uh, we can hibernate to some extent. Hmm. How true is um, that? Fascinating. Thank well, you, Pulisar. There, mm-hmm. ha- there have been cases of individuals who have undergone immersion in very cold water and they have clinically died. They have shown no cardiac activity. They've been totally unresponsive and their body temperature had fallen to really low levels. These people, when warmed up, were given cardiac massage and the heart restarted and they regained consciousness. 
there have also been uh, documented cases of people who have, I think there was one young woman who got blown into a thundercloud while she was um, paragliding in Australia. And she was taken to an extreme altitude, very low oxygen, but very low temperature. And she lost consciousness, potentially died, uh, and, and then fell back to earth when the updraft that had carried her aloft uh, hmm. dissipated. And uh, she awoke with very severe frostbite, but alive, probably because the lump, the, the bump of landing perhaps helped to do a bit of cardiac massage and, and bring her back to life. Very, very cold, but alive. So the evidence we have is that this is possible, but it's a pretty high-risk situation, isn't it? Um, you know, we do this under controlled circumstances when we've got to do certain types of surgery on people or when people have certain types of diseases. We do use hypothermia, cooling them, to reduce the injury to body parts. And this can include when we do cardiac surgery because you need to disconnect the body from the blood supply for a while. Under certain circumstances with certain types of surgical intervention like that, we may cool a patient down. Mm. Uh, also with brain surgery or head injury and people who have been made very, very cold by accident, we warm them up gently. And mostly, if these were previously young, fit, healthy people with a good ability to be resilient and to cope, they often make a very good recovery, despite being dead. And in the case of one woman, I think she was Norwegian, who ended up in water, you know, freezing cold and um, unconscious and then clinically dead. I think she was like that for half an hour wow. and then got resuscitated, maybe longer. Why does it work? It works because when you reduce temperature, you reduce the metabolic rate of tissue. The, the metabolic rate it follows the rate at which chemical reactions happen because metabolism is just chemistry. Mm -hmm. And roughly for every... Uh, increase in uh, temperature um, of one degree, you can you can increase maybe double the metabolic rate or the rate of the chemical reactions that are going on. So if you reduce the temperature, you very dramatically reduce the metabolic rate. If you reduce metabolic rate, you reduce the demand for energy in a cell. And if you reduce its demand for energy and oxygen, it can get by on a lot less of that for a lot longer without causing harm or damage to the tissue. You also reduce the rate at which the reactions that produce toxic substances can poison your tissues. So therefore, you are protected by the low demand of the tissue in the first place and low production of toxic substances that might harm the tissue and cause it to be damaged by being dead uh, otherwise. And as a result, people can make a good recovery. And we do use this clinically, but it's, it's not one of those things that you would do willingly without you know absolute necessity to do this because mm. there are risks mm. Poloso, there you go yep. Great. Yes. Yeah, that's fascinating it is, thank it's you. very fascinating yeah. thank you for your question and that's why we love this segment because uh, we get so many curious and interesting questions coming our way, what happens to the brain uh, you talked about a cardiac massage you know to bring the heart uh, back to full function but while this is happening, what's happened to the brain? Well, the brain is also one of the most precious organs we have in terms of having a very high metabolic rate. The oxygen demand of the brain is exceptionally high, uh, disproportionately so. The brain only contributes about 2% to your body mass, but it accounts for maybe 20 to 25% of the oxygen that you use. Mm. In other words, it's very metabolically hungry. And when you cool it down, you dramatically reduce the risk of having consequences of uh, lack of blood flow to your brain because if your brain is left cooking away at its normal temperature running um running at full tilt then it very quickly runs out of oxygen if you deprive it of a blood supply and then it starts to damage itself by the build-up of of damaging toxic intermediates with low temperature 
the rate at which the, ner the nerve cells in the brain fire is reduced if they stop firing so much obviously you're unconscious mm. but their metabolic demands are much much lower and therefore you can get away with a much lower blood flow for a period of time before irreversible damage happens to the brain so uh, very very often when we do cool down patients it is with the intention of preserving the central nervous system mm -hmm. from and cushioning the, the central nervous system from that kind of chemical damage caused by a poor blood flow mm. fascinating next let's go to boxburg with alistair hello alistair Hi, Zangi and Dr. Chris. Um, just you're talking about the frozen brain. Does that actually, when it's free, frozen, do you start speaking with an Irish accent? <laughs> anyway, no, and let's um, be clear. We're, we're not talking about freezing the brain. <laughs> we're talking about very low temperatures because what we haven't that, that solved is. yet is how you can actually freeze tissue. There are some animals that have evolved to be completely frozen. There are certain very, very cold-tolerant animals, including frogs and other amphibians, that can be completely frozen solid and they do it by producing various chemicals in their bodies that paradoxically make themselves freeze really really well and really fast and that avoids the damage that happens if we were to freeze part of ourselves normally which is that the cells would basically explode because they would freeze up the fresh water in the cells leave a really salty solution that would then pull in loads of water from the surrounding tissues and burst the cell open these animals get round that we can't get around that, so we would never freeze a person. We only freeze things that we want to kill. In other words, things like verrucas on your feet. Great. Sorry, sorry, uh, so, sorry, Alistair, sorry, your sorry. question now. Yeah. Sorry, Chris, that, that was a joke, actually. But <laughs> anyway, the real uh, question is, I'm not sure on how much has been featured on your show, but could you give us a pocket 101 overview on the parasitic drug ivermectin? The pros, the cons, the history... Okay, ivermectin. I, I, I certainly can. Well, but there was in India where it was widely available. How dangerous is it? What happens to the body? I read that Oxford University are now conducting trials with it. Anyway, thanks, Dr. Okay, Chris. thank you, Alistair. Thanks, Alistair. Ivermectin is an anti-parasitic drug, and it's an old drug. It's something we've been using for many years, and this means that we have the virtue of understanding it pretty well and understanding what the side effect profile is. We can make it very cheaply and distribute it cheaply. So that's all good. Why this has entered the fore and entered the fray is because people, when COVID came to town, began to look for possible what are called off-target effects of drugs already on the formulary whereby drugs that are used to treat one thing may, as a side effect and just by chance, have activity against a totally different thing. Because this does happen in medicine. Mm. We will find that there'll be a drug that we understand really well, we've already licensed it, we've done safe clinical trials, but it has a side effect that just by chance means it treats another disorder. And this happens from time to time. People are actually actively pursuing this sort of thing because sometimes you can discover drugs that you've written off for their original purpose but which the side effects are even more gratifying. And a really good example of this, people listening to this probably know where I'm going to go, the drug Viagra yes. was actually developed as a treatment because it controls blood flow and was being used in clinical trials in people with certain types of vascular problem. And one side effect reported by the study subjects who were male was that they had a problem previously that went away. That was impotence and they could get it up. And then they discovered that a side effect of this was that it was very active in the tissues that are linked to erection. Mm -hmm. So there are 
schools of thought that are out there saying, right, when we have a challenge on our hands like coronavirus, there may well be drugs that we already have, we've already made, which may as a side effect tackle that too. And people are actually going a step further now and they're using artificial intelligences and machine learning tools to try to find these sorts of relationships because they're doing things like saying, what genes does a coronavirus infection turn on in a cell? What does it do to the biochemistry of a cell that, that it infects? Mm. Are there any drugs that produce the mirror image set of changes in that cell? Because if that drug was there, arguably, it would make it much more difficult and frustrate the growth of the coronavirus because it would be doing the opposite of what the virus wants to do. So by doing this, a number of different clinical lead compounds are now emerging. And, and in fact, there was a paper in the recent days that suggested there may be several hundred drugs that we could begin to try. Ivermectin is one drug that has emerged as a possible candidate to do this with. It may be that given to people who have coronavirus, it might help to reduce the mortality rate or the risk of very severe illness. Now, the problem is the data are not strong enough yet. What we need are big numbers of, of people who've had the drug compared with a big number of people who haven't had the drug and this is done in a well-controlled way. In other words, you can directly compare the two groups. There's no statistical bias in there, and you're measuring and comparing apples with apples. There are lots of little trials, but there are very few that actually test this rigorously enough for us to know whether or not this mm. really makes a difference. And so the next stage now is to look at some of the data which, which suggests there might be a, a relationship there and apply a proper clinical trial to it and find out whether or not it really does bear fruit and if it does, it's another thing to add to our suite of chemicals we now understand can help to reduce mortality in people who become severely unwell. Mm, well, there was a question that raised or a debate that raised here about whether or not um, doctors should be prescribing it for COVID-19 patients. What do you think? Well, you, you may recall that about this time last year, there yeah. was a big furore around hydroxychloroquine, the anti-malarial drug. Yes. And this is also used for other blood conditions and immune conditions as well. But uh, Donald Trump was uh, you know, quoted on the media saying, I'm taking hydroxychloroquine. Now, this is because of a number of small trials initially had suggested that possibly there might be a benefit. And um, there was also some in vitro, in other words, experiments done in the test tube type data suggesting it might have an effect. But mm -hmm. a test tube is not a human being. So you have to be really careful how you extrapolate things that happen in a laboratory yeah. to things that might happen in a hospital bed. And as a result of proper rigorous clinical trials as part of the Oxford University recovery trial, it was disproven. Hydroxychloroquine does not have a place in the management of acute coronavirus infection. But some trials had suggested perhaps it did, which mm -hmm. is where that confusion arose and why had they had to test it properly. So what I'm saying is um, anecdotal evidence, small trials, potentially biased trials, they might give us a clue but they can also mislead us, which is why it's not a replacement for proper statistically rigorous trials that are now going on to find out whether or not drugs like ivermectin can make a difference. Great. Uh, next, we go to Jeff in Rodeport. Hello, Jeff. Hi, Eva. Hi, Jeff. Uh, I hope you can hear me. Yes, we can. I have a question for Chris. Uh, I'm just curious to know why is it that I'll get cold or flu when my feet are cold, like the soles of my feet are cold. Otherwise, uh, I could be wearing a vest uh, during like a minus five degree weather and I don't get through at all. I swear my feet are cold, even if it's not cold outside. All of a sudden, I'm cold. So if your feet are cold, you feel cold. But if you're wearing a vest, 
and it's cold. No, I don't feel cold. I just get through. I, I literally feel the flu coming up, like I get oh, weak in my joints. Yes. But I don't feel yeah. cold. Okay. Well, Chris, you I, got I guess that? one, one mm-hmm. way of um, putting this would be to say, well, why is it, despite when we catch, say, the flu, mm. we run a temperature and we may have a temperature of 40 degrees, which is pretty high temperature, but you feel freezing cold. And the reason is that when we catch an infection, one of the body's responses is to mount an immune response. And part of that immune response, which is called your innate immune response, because it's built into you, is to release into the bloodstream various chemicals called immune modulators or cytokines. And these chemicals go to the brain and specifically they trigger a part of the brain called the hypothalamus, which is at the bottom of your brain. (laughs) And it's where all of the automatic systems are located. Your life support systems are in there. That sets how hot you are, how cold you are, how you stop yourself getting too hot, how you stop yourself getting too cold, how thirsty you feel, how much water you should be drinking, when you feel hungry, when you feel tired, when you need to go to sleep. That's all down to the hypothalamus. And by measuring the levels of these inflammatory chemicals in the, in the blood, then the hypothalamus can adjust your thermostat for your body mm. and it will turn up the set point at which you are feeling comfortable and make your temperature go up by boosting metabolism. And as a result, your temperature goes up, but you still feel freezing cold because the hypothalamus is telling you, you're not hot enough yet, get hotter. So by making you feel cold, it makes you make yourself hotter. And this has the effect of having a bigger impact on the bug than it does on you. So it helps to thwart the growth of some types of infections. And it also increases metabolic rate. So you can fight off things and build an immune response a bit faster Mm -hmm. at higher temperatures. And you... Uh, are suffering less than the thing that's trying to infect you by being subject to that high temperature. But that's why you feel cold despite having the flu and being very, very hot. Jeff, there you go. Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Yes, there's your answer, your hypothalamus uh, regulating your temperature. Thanks for the call. Thank you. Thank you. And then we go to Eunice next. Hello, Eunice. Hi, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Um, I've but it's directed at the professor. I've, I've had the shingles about 35 years ago. And I understand shingles is a virus. And uh, I've been told by the neurologist and a few doctors that the chances are that I, I might not get the shingles again. So I'd just like to know if uh, 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 the shingles virus uh, uh, has, a, has a professor or or anybody done any research to, to see that if anybody's had shingles, whether they would get the virus. Which virus? The, uh, the coronavirus. Oh, they told you you wouldn't get the coronavirus if you've had shingles? Uh, no, no, they said I wouldn't get the shingles again. Because you've had the coronavirus? Yes, because I've had the coronavirus. Uh, I've, I've, no, uh, I've had the shingles, which is a virus. Yes. And the doc said that I wouldn't get the shingles again. Now, shingles being a virus, and, uh, and COVID-19 is also a virus, uh, but I just need to know if they've done any research to see whether uh, previous shingle sufferers would be able to get this coronavirus. Hmm. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying, you. So the, the answer to that is that they're totally different viruses. The virus that causes shingles is the same virus that causes chicken pox. And in countries like South Africa, about 90% of the population have actually had it. And when you catch chickenpox, the first outing of the virus is to cause a rash all over your body. 
and that's crammed with virus that can then leap out of the blisters into the air and then another person can breathe it in and catch it. But after it's gone all over your body and your skin, the virus then retreats into your nervous system and it hides in your nervous system for the rest of your life. So if we go and take a person at random off the streets of Johannesburg and we look in the nerves that supply the skin all over the body, about 90% of the time we're going to find the, the virus hiding in those nerves. And in response to various triggers, and those triggers can include trauma to the skin, getting low, being malnourished, having drugs on board that suppress your immune system, okay. the virus senses that its host might be compromised and mm -hmm. so it makes a comeback and it comes back down one of the nerves, produces new virus particles that infect the overlying skin and they then produce shingles rash. So you get a, a, a strip of, of blisters on that patch of skin supplied by that nerve and those blisters are fully infectious again for chickenpox virus mm -hmm. and it can be passed on to another individual. Yeah. Chris, now, I am going to ask that we uh, pause it there and uh, we'll get this answer to uh, Eunice as you conclude it because I've got to take headlines which are coming from Cape Town um, and so time is of the essence. Thank you as always. It's a pleasure. Thank you. You stay with us and then we'll link uh, this answer to Eunice as he gets more details on how shingles works.